people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Hello and welcome to Twelve Rules for What. This is a podcast about fascism, anti-fascism, the far right. My name is Alex. If you want to support the show, then you can do so on Patreon, patreoncom slash 12 what um, You can do it for as little as two dollars a month, and it really helps us out with um, the various costs of running the show. And uh, now we're having an interview with the Border Violence Monitoring Network. If you want to find out more about them, check the show notes. There's a bunch of useful links there, linking to their various reports, their Twitter, their website, etc. So now on with the show. Uh, and now I'm joined by Annie and Eleanor from the Border Violence Monitoring Network. Hi guys, how are you? Hello, we're good. Thank you for having us. Yeah, all good. Uh, it's an honor speaking in your podcast. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, um, for listeners who don't know about what the network does and and how you got founded, what is the Border Violence Monitoring Network, and how has your work developed over the years? Eleanor, do you want to give? A little intro. <laughs> yes, uh, happy to do so. So um, the Border Violence Monitoring Network is actually a network of, at the moment, we are 12 um, member organizations um, all over, let's say, the former Balkan route. So uh, based in Greece, Croatia, Serbia, Bosnia, um, Slovenia, Austria. Um, and yeah, the... So it's all small grassroots organizations that um, came. Um, oh, sorry, <laughs> it's all small grassroots organizations working in these different countries, providing services to to people on the move, maybe legal services or support with food or support with um, giving them tents or whatever whatever is needed in their situation. Um, they all, so 2015, the, the former Balkan route was closed. Um, and as a result of this, actually, um, all the small organizations experienced more and more um, violence, or not the organizations themselves, but the people that would come to them um, for their services, they would uh, report about more and more violence happening to them on the borders, about pushbacks, about police violence. So all these organizations, back then it was very small, mainly centering around the Croatian, Serbian, Bosnian border, they came together um, to record testimonies of this violence um, and to make public what's happening to create awareness and to finally establish some, some change, hopefully. And yeah, well, the network crew by now, maybe Annie can give a short overview of what, what we're doing in detail. Mm-hmm, yeah. And um, so I guess I have first-hand experience of being um, on the field because I've been living in northern Greece taking testimonies of pushbacks and internal violence um, through BBMN for almost a year now so yeah I mean essentially the main objective of the network I think is still just to collect data and document and report on the violations that are occurring at and within EU borders and over the past few years, like since its establishment, um, we've developed our own sort of process of testimony taking. Um, so we meet with the person, um, we have a chat with them, they share their experience. And then after um, a thorough process of fact checking and verification, um, we upload 
the info onto our database which is on our website and it's open access so anyone can um log on and and access the information um, and these reports usually include hard facts of what happened um and yeah detailed accounts of the violations and then sometimes also pictures if there was injuries and things sustained as well um so yeah we would usually just kind of create i guess the main goal is to create a space in which um people on the move can share their stories and their experiences and then with that i guess we hope to advocate at both national and international levels for accountability and um some sort of responsibility taken for what is going on and the the abuses and the rights violations that are going on um at the borders yeah i mean it's um the EU likes to kind of present itself as this kind of progressive block and you know supporting human rights around the world and you know LGBTQ rights and all these different kind of things but it's often that you know after at the frontiers of you know sovereign various sovereignties that you can see like a real how it really operates um and it's particularly at the EU borders where we see a lot of this almost unofficial violence happening um how i guess officially unofficial how has the EU's border policies changed over the years, at least from what you can see over like the last 10 years or so? I I would just say, yeah, um, one thing before saying like how it's changed over the past few years, like when you say, and, and you're right to say that um, the EU likes to present itself as this progressive bloc, um, when you are speaking to people who have been affected by this violence, one of the things that you hear the most is their just shock and disbelief um at how they are treated when they arrive into Europe and you know they think of Europe as this place where um their human rights would be respected and upheld um of this place where you know it preaches about protecting and preserving individual rights and dignity and safety um and in reality it's a place that treats people who need its protection the most I would say worse than animals and people you often hear sentences like you know where are my human rights or what human rights and and they say that that they were treated worse in Europe than they were in the countries that they fled from um and it's really really understandable these statements because then when you go on to hear about um their experiences it's it's horrific you know what they're facing um so yeah, I mean that's kind of the situation now. Um and it's just like it's incredibly um hypocritical um to call themselves progressive. What Sorry, is just what So what kind of stuff are they? Yeah, I mean it's so all in the reports. It. It's yeah, I mean we've met with like hundreds of men, women and also children um that have been pushed back from European territory and have had their pleas for asylum blatantly ignored by often state authorities, which is a right that they're entitled to um, under international law. And then many of these stories or experiences will include um, like severe physical and verbal abuse um, and racist abuse as well, sexual harassment and assault, theft of belongings, um, which often would include like phones, money and invaluable personal possessions which they could never get back and also like people on the move would be 
extremely dependent on um their phones because it's their only means of contacting um people that maybe the um, are located in the places they're going also the places that they left um they use it for maps it's like you know it's kind of their lifeline in in many situations um they often experience humiliating strip searches um and just like a multitude of other cruel tactics that would often i think um live up to like torture and um yeah and it's often yeah sorry you go yeah i think maybe to add in there also oh sorry any is maybe that often there's also elements of detention so i think Uh, what we see in kind of the modus operandi of most of the pushbacks. I mean, I think this is part of BVMN's work is mm -hmm. also to show that what is happening, it's not the single practice, it's a systemic practice. It has a specific modus operandi and there are trends or we try to shed light on this. It's an overall thing that is happening. And I think one additional point that I find important is that there's also detention where people are oftentimes maybe detained for half a day or even longer without food, without access to water, without access to to a toilet. Um, and all of this, as Andy said, um, can actually, under the UN definition of torture, um, be defined as torture. So I think we, we regularly do analyzes, and I think um, in some countries we have um, in over 80% of the testimonies we take elements of torture that can be defined as torture according to the international definition. Um, Yeah, so I think this is, for me, it's really important to see that this is actually severe. It's not just something happening. Um, and while I believe that, as you said, and the, the, the people that are coming that experience this, they are not aware of it. While at the same time, when I speak to my European friends, none of them knows. And I find it so shocking in a way that uh, there's so less of awareness, maybe. Um, we've, 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 you've, you've, you've mentioned the term pushback already. Um, and just... For us to be clear, what is a pushback and how does it differ from, I suppose, a more formalized system of asylum claim and rejection, acceptance, or and then either, you know, um, settlement or or deportation? Um, I I would describe a pushback um as the illegal expulsion of people from a territory, um people that would have an international right to claim asylum. Um, which that right derives from the 1951 UN Convention relating to the status of refugees. And so pushbacks would be orchestrated without any respect for due process or procedures. And I think that's how it varies from formal deportations. It's that they're conducted like outside the rule of law. Um, and like we, we mentioned before, they typically include violence and, as Elena said, arbitrary detention um, and usually place people in severely dangerous and precarious situations. Okay, because that, that's actually that's actually useful for me because I thought pushback just referred to um, you know if you if someone's at sea and then they get kind of um, turned away before they can get to land or something like that. So that's a, it's a more broad, a broader, a broader thing. Yeah, but yeah, I mean that would also be included under the term pushback. It could be a maritime pushback. Yeah, but I think maybe some people might not know or be aware that it actually is illegal to do that and many states are using this as like a core element of their um border securitization or i mean also like their approach to migration and their policy um around migration in general 
Uh, Eleanor, do you? Yeah, nothing okay, to add. Cool. <laughs> not, not really. I mean, I, I think what is interesting is maybe that there is no official legal definition yet of a pushback, um, but it includes all these elements. And I think um, what you said is totally right, Annie, that what is happening at the sea, you can link under the same frame because actually, I mean, actually, according to the um, Geneva Convention, everybody that reaches the, the country... Um, or a territory of a certain state has the right to, to ask for asylum and to have his case individually assessed, which is in all of those cases never happening. And um... We often like, I mean, in the UK, we've got our own, even though it's outside the EU now, like there's still this kind of massive, although it's lessened in recent years, this massive furor of the channel crossings and, you know, these very lurid plans that the UK government inc- has kind of proposed and tried to push through. Um, particularly like, you know, pushbacks, they, that was a, a thing that had been proposed and seriously considered. And, of course, the kind of quite famous now um, so-called Rwanda plan. Um, is this kind of, is this kind of quite kind of shocking, like kind of mass resettlement to somewhere where it's as far away from, from the original country? How how aberrant is that from like these, these um migration policies that that countries have in the eu i mean i mean first of all i think the important p- thing with pushbacks is that um before we, we maybe go to to rwanda and see how it can be applicable or not i think the, the important point is that no government would ever say that they are doing pushbacks they are facilitating pushbacks i think that greece is the best example for this like to the outward always um, keeping up this picture of being a country of human rights where even though there's massive allegations there's massive amounts of evidence um, and video evidence even they would still deny this is happening so i think it's also part of a migration regime that is maybe not or border border politics that is not officially um, articulated to the, to the general public um, this first of all to be honest I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm not very deep into I mean I know about the Rwanda plans um, I'm not 100% sure to which extent you can phrase this as a pushback but maybe any you have more ideas than me um I would just say that I think it's really easy to get caught up in, um, yeah, like government proposals and policies, and it gets very removed from the reality of the situation. Um, and, you know, I think they'll often try to pose it um, to the population of whatever state we're talking about and say, you know, this works, like, this makes sense, we can manage the flow, we can relocate them, they'll be fine, and, and kind of just, like, pushing it out of of our, our minds, you know? And when you actually, like, just boil it down to simplicity, like, these people, like, not these people is not a good term, but, you know, like, people who leave their countries, often, m- most of the time, they don't want to leave, and they're forced to leave. And that's just like, that's the truth of it. And also if people, I also, like, I believe in just freedom of movement in general. And if someone decides that they want to move to another country because of whatever, better prospects, or I don't know, they prefer the culture or they just want to explore the way we all have the right to do. Um, you know, that's another story. But to, to 
to have someone come and just send them away to a country where they have no ties they have no family they're just uprooted and and dropped down into this foreign land when they've already experienced such traumatic events and more than likely they won't have any sort of like psychological support often they don't have medical support it's just inhumane and it's just wrong like that's the simplicity of it I think Mm -hmm. and and it's it's just it's so like you said like abhorrent to think that this is something that people a consider in the first place but also believe and support because I just yeah it's just it's so for me it's so crazy to think that we could do that to to, to people yeah and I feel also for me it's a little bit um taking away like the human in this person's you know with like all these governmental plans I mean some of our member organizations for example they also work in um in the camps on the quick islands for example our member organization I have rights they work at the closed access center the new the newly established camp in Samos on the island uh, which is kind of in a, going in the same direction where people are um, like the camp itself is in a um, position very far from the city there's strict um, times when they when the people that live they have to be back at night not a lot of organizations are allowed to be in there and I feel this prison style um, environment um, actually kind of reduces the humanity of of the people traveling it reduces like it's on a paper just numbers and then i think this is also the idea of bvmn is maybe also to to give back a voice and to to treat people that experience the worst as humans again in in a way we give them at least a platform to speak about what happened to them i guess one last observation before we move on like you know you you kind of caught yourself saying these people or whatever and i noticed you were using the the phrase people on the move and oftentimes even like for us who are like pro-freedom and movement and in solidarity with people trying to yeah moving being forced to move and forced to migrate it's often hard to avoid these kind of quite dehumanizing terms like even the like quite i suppose value neutral terms like migrant has been like kind of twisted by the tabloids and by the governments and by you know various far-right um, parties and governments and organizations to be loaded with this really like threatening negative connotation so you can't even really even saying my like migrant is is dehumanizing um and i and i just i don't know what my i don't know what my quick exactly what my question is about that but it's just a really kind of thing we all need to like keep in mind when and and what and i think what the the network does really well is like these testimonies put center the people who are moving center the people who are experiencing these degradations and this violence in a way that oftentimes, I suppose, very well-meaning, charitable and, you know, other kinds of support, it often leaves out those actual very fundamental perspectives and stories to this whole thing. Yeah, I I totally agree. And also, I think, I mean, thinking about terms, (laughs) um, I mean, I believe nobody is an expert in always using derived terms, but for me, it's very important to consider language. And I think this term of like person on the move or people on the move, it brings back the idea that, well, in the end, this is just another person like you and me. They are, they are moving from one place to the other, but it's just part of their story and it doesn't it doesn't define their whole being. Yeah. Um. So in the UK, which is 
you know, what I'm most familiar with, the, the far right has been very active on the southern coast and kind of doing their own kind of monitoring and, and intimidation. You know, they film um, people arriving on boats and they have been intimidating various observer organizations that are on the southern coast as well. Um, and it seems to me that there's a, this kind of, in Europe more explicitly, you know, like far right governments are in power and enacting policy. Um, but, you know, just generally as well, that there's this merging of the far right or like far right political groups and organizations and with kind of governmental and more institutional, um, you know, kind of organizations. And I was wondering, you know, to what extent does, how, what, to what extent are far right organizations in Europe collaborating with the border regime? Yeah, I think I'd just say um, briefly, I guess maybe not so much about like along the borders, but like in general across Europe, there's been a swing towards, um, yeah, the far right in, in government and see like in the UK or in Italy or um, in Greece. And I think it's really, obviously it's really dangerous because now you're seeing that people who maybe would be more hesitant let's say if like because we're talking about migration like people who would have been um hesitant to you know be like actively anti-migration and um and this kind of thing and now they're feeling like they have a, a space to voice this so like um even just recently again in Greece um there was demonstrations going on after the or protests going on after the shipwreck that happened two weeks ago um and you know there was a mass amount of numbers and there was a great turnout and there was a lot of anger and a lot of rage and it was good to see that people were out there taking to the streets but there was also people there um like far right supporters that were um you know there to cause conflict and there were you know shouting slurs and um racism and this kind of thing and I, for me personally, that was quite rare before. And even like in Ireland, there's been a serious rise in far right groups that are active um, and they have often targeted people on the move that have recently arrived um, in, in Ireland. Like there was, again, I think like last month, um, an attack on like an informal settlement of um, people, they had their tents attacked and like I think set on fire and just like really really violent and aggressive behavior um that we wouldn't have seen before also like in another in another county there was a blockade put up in a town where they were meant to um accommodate a group of asylum seekers and the local residents essentially like took it upon themselves to like close off the town and prevent as a, as a means of protest to stop them from coming there are a lot of reasons contributing to that, but it's just very apparent in the last year-ish, or in the, in the last few months, um, for me, anyways, personally. Um, I don't know if that answers the question. <laughs> Elena, do you, have, do you want to say anything? No, definitely. I, I agree 100% with what you say, and I think that for... I, I think at, as a network, we have the... The advantage that we have perspectives of several countries and what you said is totally right and that there's in general this tendency all over 
all over Europe and like more right-wing governments, more um, that also I would say maybe give the climate that allows then people to to also use the space they are given to to as to to come together as a right-wing group to also um, violate the rights of of people on the move. Um, and I think overall, uh, what what I see personally is also that I feel a lot of let's say European migration problems, um, problems politics, <laughs> um, and things they said like for example the asylum pact decisions that are made. There's big narrations about securitization, about the the danger of the migrant. We have to protect Europe from, um, and all these narratives that build up. I would say starting from like 9-11 then um, 2015 a lot of people coming to Europe and I think all this build up to a way things are even phrased on the international political level that then also leaves a lot of space for for these kind of actions um, and I think it's all embedded in a, in a bigger context um, and I mean, what what you just said about Ireland, maybe to add on this is also what our member organizations experience, for example, in Serbia, is that um, uh, people on the move living there in, in squads, uh, squads are often evicted either by the police or by by local right wing groups. Um, the our member organizations working there, they experience a lot of like harassment, destruction of premises. Um, there was even, I think, for some time in Serbia, a Facebook group where certain pictures of certain people uh, would be shared. Um, so yeah, I think, and also I know that there was also, for example, landlords that would rent their their places to to volunteers working with those organizations. They would get harassed by by right wing groups. So I think, yeah, this is definitely it's existing, and I think it's all embedded in this bigger, um, for me also in this bigger political narration that. Um, has this kind of narration of protection and securitization without really considering what this means in, in reality and practice for the people at the borders. Yeah, you you mentioned criminalization, so we should probably come to that. Like, I suppose as um, you know, movement is is criminalized, and as people increasingly face sanctions for just exercising their very basic rights that are guaranteed to them. Um, so too does the kind of work of the member organizations or the people providing solidarity like it becomes a matter of assisting a criminal rather than showing aid and care and solidarity to someone who is who is in need um, so what kind of repression is border violence network member groups faced and I suppose how can we like organize against these attacks against solidarity this is definitely mm. Elena's area, <laughs> the expert. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe you should know that I'm actually working at the moment mainly on, on these topics for the network. Um, I think, I mean, in general, we see an increase. I think for me, um, what is important to say always is that for me, criminalization has to be seen in a context. It's always like, let's say, first, first there was this narration of security. And I think... In, in the scope of this migration in general is criminalized and then as a fact people on the move are criminalized so um, for example at the moment um, increase every time there is a boat arriving at the, 
to shore. Uh, at least two people are put into prison because they're assumed or they're accused of being smugglers. Maybe just because they were sitting next to next to the engine of the boat. Um, and f I think especially for people on the move, um, they might face crazy charges where at the same time they have no access to translation, they have no access to, to legal support. To any kind of support structure. So this is, let's say, the, the first kind of criminalization that's happening in this all-over context, while then, as let's say, a secondary part of criminalization, solidarity is criminalized and kind of the, the organizations, the, the movements, um, helping people on the move. Um, and I think what we experienced there, mm, a lot of different things, definitely increasing recently, and I would say, or in recent years, and I think what is important is to, to distinguish while you know, there's this very famous case, for example, of Sean Bider and Zara Madini that had like a, a court case. Um, but for me, or how we understand criminalization as a network, this goes further to say, okay, we have this formal court cases, but there's also informal forms of criminalization. For example, increase um, getting registered as an organization was made far harder, which makes it very challenging for a lot of groups and organizations to, to work. There's informal criminalization in form of um, increased police audits, um, increased, um, let's say, verbal harassment, threats, um, yeah, being maybe even intimidation being target of, of surveillance even. Um, I think, yeah, and all of this we definitely see. Um, and I mean, interesting is maybe also that we had a partner organization, a member organization in Turkey that, um, Chazor, uh, they were um, mainly collecting testimonies of pushbacks from, from Greece to Turkey. Um, and then the Greek government started an, a court case, or actually a police investigation against um, 33 individuals of some organizations, among them also uh, our colleagues working in this organization. Um, interesting is that they never actually publicly announced the police investigation or the court case. They never got the letter um, from the court. Actually, the Greek, the Greek government um, leaked the case, the police investigation to the media, and then uh, our colleagues had to learn from journalists that there's actually a police investigation against them. And this was happening in 2020, and until now there was still no court case. So I think what this, this is a crazy example also in a way showing the mental pressure um, that can be a consequence of this while at the same time our organization there actually had to close down uh, exactly about a year ago and one of the reasons was criminalization because uh, this because of this case being opened against them actually one of their funders withdraw their their funding mm -hmm. um, so I think like this is just some scattered examples here and there. Um, but I think because you asked about um, what can we do, I think for me, it's a lot about narrations, a lot about being aware maybe of what is happening, being also aware of there's this narrative of like securitization of borders, but actually looking back on what does this imply for, for the situation at the borders and how are people treated and supporting them in their human needs and giving them access to human yeah to 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 fulfill their human needs at least or to to claim asylum should be the right of everybody and nobody should should be criminalized for doing 
human work and recording human rights violations. Yeah. And just to note as well that, I mean, as a result of Jasur being forced to dissolve, now we don't have any um, partner organization or member organization active in Turkey that can report and document on the amount of pushbacks that are happening. And we know that there are, I mean, that is one of like the hotspots, like most people end up getting pushed back to Turkey, whether it be from Greece or Bulgaria or chain pushbacks. Like it's really, really frequent and it's really regular. And we now just have this basically like black hole where we have, we know it's going on, but we don't have um, any like means of gathering the testimonies because it's just um it's seemingly too too dangerous and too risky to operate at the moment and yeah i mean i think i guess investigations become part of the part of the sanction you know it's not you 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 mentioned eleanor about the, the kind of mental pressure but also just you know being you know slapped with an in police official of police investigation is enough to scare funders is enough to like scare people who are, are doing solidarity work and um yeah i don't know it's no no good really no good answer apart from carrying on and and, and finding ways around around the harassment around criminalization um yeah, yeah mm, go on sorry no definitely i mean i mean what we also try to do as a network is because we engage a lot in advocacy work and try to create awareness about the situation also on a on a political level um, engaging with different actors, increasing networks, and what we actually did, um, because I think this is interesting. Also relating to the question you asked earlier on, um, so when when we started looking into what advocacy tools do we actually have to to support cases of criminalization, how can we support our member organizations and individuals being criminalized, we realized that there is actually, while there is a lot of protection from the EU for outside the EU. Um, to support human rights defenders outside the EU, there's actually not a lot um, of support mechanisms for inside the EU, which is kind of built on this totally, let's say, random, nearly random assumption that within the EU, there is human rights, no human rights defender has any problem, and nobody is criminalized, uh, which mm -hmm. we see is definitely not the case. And uh, what we did as, as a, what we tried to do to support human rights defenders was that we actually established, um, based on our knowledge and speaking with a lot of different actors, a, a toolkit of advocacy tools for when being criminalized within the EU or in Europe, um, to also create awareness because I believe that yeah, if, if we build networks, we can we can be stronger in, in these struggles. And I think this is also the whole idea of the network itself to create a voice together to be stronger um, with the evidence or the things that we're experiencing. Mm -hmm. You've mentioned uh, like securitization a fair bit in this interview and it's, I think it's a central, obviously it's a central um, process that's happening around Europe's borders and one of the climate, one of the securitizations we're going to be seeing more and more of, of course, is that that is linked to the climate crisis. You know, within environmentalism, there is an argument that is being made and will continue to be made for border security, for increased militarized borders. Um, how do you think this kind of environmental form of securitization is going to play out over the next decade? And obviously, it's very hard to tell the future, and um, we don't know, but we can make some 
guesses and we can try and anticipate. And also, how can we, maybe this is beyond the, the scope of the interview, but maybe I'll just pose it as, how can we kind of propose environmental and climate crisis alleviating stuff that avoids this kind of looming securitization? Well, I think, like, the first thing, I'll just say so just briefly, like, the first thing would be to recognise, like, the, the member states and um, the EU and the Commission, like, they can build up the borders as much as they want and they can invest hundreds and millions and billions within the EU and outside of the EU and they can deploy as many soldiers and but it's not going to stop people from trying to come to Europe like it's not fixing any of the situations or the problems or the conflicts or the wars or whatever the case may be in the countries in like which are forcing people to leave so it's just like I can't even say that it's putting a plaster over a wound, but it's just not sustainable. Like, it's just not, it, it's not going to hold up, especially, like, as you said, with, like, with the crime, climate crisis, sorry, with the climate crisis, um, we are going to see much more movement of people and we're going to see a lot of displaced communities. Um, and it's going to increase a lot in the coming years. And the way we're approaching migration now is just not practicable yeah and uh, i can only add to this i think that uh, also what, what you said alex before about like um borders being more and more securitized i i think we can already see this for example um i i believe maybe and this is what we can definitely say about the future is that let's say digital borders will become a bigger and bigger things border technologies artificial intelligence by now we already um, kind of kind of what we, we try to, to focus on our work on at the moment is a lot actually technologies because we see this rising on the testimonies we collected. I think by now we have like, let's say 30, I think about 35 testimonies where the people that were pushed back mentioned that before the police found them, a drone found them. So there's a clear link between drones being part of, of, um, of uh, border securitization um, and then find let's say finding people at the border at the green border and then appending them same at the seaside so this is what we can definitely see i think technologies will, will be on the rise i think um borders will become unfortunately and sometimes it's a bit depressing to be honest i feel borders will get more and more te technology they will yeah i think human rights violations will keep on happening um, while at the same time I agree with Andy that I think I think it's important to recognize that people never leave their country just for fun, even if they would, they should have the right to. Because me, for example, um, as a as a white European, I can travel to a lot of countries, and I think as many fences as we build, migration won't stop, especially with. Um, effects of environmental change, um, maybe also le leading to increased conflicts, um, yeah, increased displaced populations. Um. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, we, 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 I've thought, we thought about a lot of this in our, um, in our writing. And it's a kind of a based on a kind of fundamental misapprehension about how it's, the crisis is going to play out in that there's no way you can wall off Europe Practically, there's no way you can wall off Europe from the effects of the climate crisis 
And uh, as Annie said, there's no way you can completely wall off Europe from people trying to from people coming into the territory. Like it's just like it's just not practicable. And I I, I think you know it asks us to confront very basic uh, kind of fundamentals of what our kind of global system is based on, which is you know imperial extraction and 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 enforced inequality between countries um, and between peoples in a way that needs to be broken down ultimately if we're all going to make it um so yeah it's just it's just one of those big things that we're going to have to confront as movements and as a kind of activists and as people who want to live in a sustainable world and everything like that yeah i i believe actually also that this um this brings me back to, to my initial thought i think that Sometimes, I mean, people often ask me, ah, oh, what can I do? How can I change something? And I think apart from, like, you know, I think, I believe change can start in a very small place. And apart from being aware, following us on Twitter and, like, being informed about the situation, I also believe that, um, I believe that change is also possible starting in the small by, um yeah fighting for equality fighting for for equal perspectives and for uh less imperialistic mindsets and yeah because i think this is this is in in the very very roots where we have to start to, to bring about change okay so you've mentioned um the network's twitter but if you could just say it explicitly for our listeners so they can go and follow um how can how it's best for people to find you and, and where are all these reports that you've been referencing throughout the interview Okay, so <laughs> we have maybe the core of our work is our website, uh, violence, uh, borderviolence.eu, um, where <laughs> borderviolence.eu, where we, where you will find, uh, like maybe the core of our work, which is this testimony database of testimonies that we refer to all the time, and I think by now we have over one thousand five hundred um, interviews. Uh, affecting over 20,000 or about 25,000 people. Um, so you can, it's like a card, you can click on it, you can read the different testimonies, you can filter countries, timeframes, where minors involved, um, what kind of violence happened there. Um, you can filter all these kind of things that what we in addition do is that we write a monthly report. Maybe any you want to talk a little bit about this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um. So the monthly report is basically just um, all the focal points and field teams that are based throughout the Balkans and Greece and Turkey that are part of BBMN. Um, we just write like up general updates on um, patterns and trends that we've seen develop, develop, excuse me, develop um, over the past month. Um, so it's just like a yeah concentrated piece where you can go and just um read up and see yeah if there's been like um a change in um i don't know the violence and tactics that certain member states use or um policy changes or important legislation that's been implemented or um I don't know evictions that have taken place. So it's it's a yeah just kind of comprehensive overview of um everything that happened over the course of the month across the Balkans related to migration. Uh yeah, and then picking up on that maybe we also have like other different reports based on different advocacy we do based on specific 
um, thematic areas, maybe like criminalization that I talked about, uh, you could all find on our website or specific country reports. Um, yeah, then we have a Twitter and a Facebook account. And um, yeah, I mean, and if you want to do more than just follow us, there's always the opportunity to volunteer with us and to actually get engaged and collect these testimonies, um, which okay. you can also find details on, on the website. Hmm. Yeah, sorry, just, just quickly, Annie, since you are actually in northern Greece right now and are, mm-hmm. you're actively involved in this work, like... I mean, how did how did you go about becoming involved in the work, and how have you found it? Um, so I came as part of my college degree. So I had a year of work placement, and I knew I wanted to do something. I always kind of had an interest in um, migration law, and and I, like I'm studying law and human rights, so that's kind of um, inferred. And I a friend um, recommended the bbmn and um i applied and i just got because i didn't realize at the time but there is a lot of applications um like throughout the year so i just got really really lucky i think um and it has been probably yeah one of the most like incredible experiences i've had to date i mean it has been such an eye-opener it's been it's a it's a really wonderful network um of of people um and it does really really important work so yeah if anybody is interested i would undoubtedly highly recommend cool um and on that note we'll we'll leave things there we'll put all the kind of links and whatever you would like into the show notes twitter and and the website and maybe some reports as well and that's it for us for this week thank you for listening everybody got no announcements i don't think and if i do i'll tack them onto the end in a separate thing so thank you and thank you guys thank you alex thanks Emil, alex Listening to Dissident Island Radio. Live every first and third Friday of the month at 9 pm GMT. Check out www.dissidentisland.org for downloads and more. Mm-hmm.